0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air. But the waste wasn't actually making it to the facility. And he was like, you should come see it.
1: And you you think we live in a third world country.
2: And the best that we can do, quite honestly, as scientists, is to translate that knowledge.
3: As I was reading over the legal record in this case, I kept saying, where is the Illinois EPA?
1: You know, the way they see, they don't care, they just look over it,
0: you know. I always say litigation is maybe 30% of what we do. A lot of pushing behind the scenes and agitating um, to make uh, a lot of
3: people do their job. I'm Sarah Fenske. South of East St. Louis, down in the broad floodplain of the Mississippi known as the American Bottom, there is a little town that is gradually sinking in a flood of human waste. Those are the words of Harvard history professor and Missouri native Walter Johnson. He was writing in 2020 about what was until recently known as the metro east town of Centerville. Residents of Centerville have dealt for more than two decades with raw sewage flooding their homes and yards, human waste pools and yards, courses through roadside ditches, and backs up into bathtubs and sinks. Eight miles southeast of St. Louis, Centerville has long been one of Illinois' poorest towns. Its 5,000 residents are almost entirely black. And for decades, residents were convinced no one cared about their plight. Well, that has changed in recent years. A federal lawsuit filed by lawyers working pro bono seeks to force authorities to deal with the problem and help residents be made whole. And a team of scientists, including researchers from Washington University and St. Louis University, are working to better understand What's caused these long-standing problems? Now, we should note the town of Centerville officially no longer exists. Almost exactly a year ago, it formed a new entity called Cahokia Heights by merging with the towns of Allerton and Cahokia. And joining us now with the latest on where things stand is Jose Constantine. He's an assistant professor of geosciences at Williams College in Massachusetts, and he is part of the team of researchers working in what is now Cahokia Heights. So, Jose, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: And we're also joined today by William McNeil. He is a Cahokia Heights resident, and he is a member of Centerville Citizens for a Change. William McNeil, welcome. Thank you. So, William, you have lived in what was Centerville for 45 years. What yeah. first brought you to move there?
1: Well, I, I come out there because it was really peaceful at first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a couple kids, my wife. So, I mean, it was simple, and it was okay. Yeah. But as the years passed, you know, things start, just running off the rails, and and the city people that was running the city, they didn't have no concern about it, you know?
3: Yeah, and when you say things were running off the rails, specifically related to these flooding problems, these sewage problems, when did that first become a major issue for you? Do you remember how long ago that was?
1: Mm, uh, because when i first come there they you know they they tried to do stuff you know like clean the ditches and stuff Mm -hmm. and maybe in about 10 11 years down the road they stopped you know trees went to growing in the ditch the city never come and do anything and uh where i live it's the ditch it runs downside my house. Okay. So all of the water that come up from Belleville, from all all the other places, run downside my house with the trash and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And it sits in my yard, goes under my house and you can't get it out because of the bricks and the foundation of the house. So now I shifted my foundation on my house, my roof and everything else, you know.
3: And you've been trying to mitigate this. I mean, you, you've you tried to address these problems in your yard, but this water and the sewage just keeps coming.
1: Just keep coming in the raw sewage, you know. And you, you think we live in a third-world country, you know. The way they see they don't care, they just look over it, you know.
3: And you said it was about 10, 12 years after you showed up, so this would have been in the 80s. That felt like when when people stopped maintaining this and and these ditches just began just trash running through them right into your yard.
1: Right into my yard. Raw sewage, too, you know. We couldn't sit outside because, you know, the smell of the raw sewage.
3: And is that a constant? I mean, you're smelling that always. Hey,
1: when the sun come out, you know what I'm saying? It just throw the smell off, you know just raw sewage,
3: so Jose, hearing about this problem, this sounds terrible. This sounds like somebody would not want to live in the middle of this and and obviously, this town is very close to the Mississippi River as this is simple as saying, "Hey, you know the river floods, that's going to overwhelm this the sewer system. That's what's causing this
2: mm that's a a great a great question, I think. You know, certainly living on the floodplain is is going to compl- complicate the the and any problem like this. But it's it's not as simple as this. There's there's no excuse really for the community and the residents to have suffered what they've suffered for so long.
3: So, as you've been looking at this. Um Is there a body of research you were able to draw on that suggests, I mean, you know, hearing from William today, he says, yeah, they just they haven't been maintaining these ditches going back decades now. Uh, Were you able to get records on what started to fall apart and and why?
2: Yeah, that's another great question. I think for for us, um, you know, I think it's been really important to us from the beginning to hear from the community, to hear from residents. Uh, what it is that uh, they've been going through, uh, their thoughts about why things are happening and and the the way that they've happened, and and all of that feedback has been really important to us. And what what that told us is that there are some really important aspects of the system that just weren't functioning. You've heard about the ditches, and there are some large channels that come off of the bluffs that uh, um, you heard William describe off of off of Belleville, that are filling up with sediment at incredible rates. Um, it's quite likely that that was a, a natural process that's only been worsened by how we've been, um, you know, building and manipulating uh, the environment. And so that's something that our group, our science team, um, is is trying to study uh, with with the community as partners. Um, to better understand how best we can manage and, and prevent manage the situation and prevent this problem from happening.
3: And Jose, you've brought the community into this research in ways that this goes beyond people just sharing observations or, or memories. What are some ways that you're getting input directly from people affected mm. on what's happening?
2: Sarah, you've got great questions here. These, these are all, all excellent. The, uh, the, this, this is important. So you know communities like Centerville, and and uh, which unfortunately um, the problems that the community is facing is isn't unique to small urban and quite honestly you know communities of color all across the country who are dealing with with similar kinds of issues. Uh, the big problem that we face is that the the channels and the 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 system the systems aren't well monitored, so it's very difficult to. Um, be able to warn residents, for instance, about when a flood is likely to occur. We just don't have that within our sort of data collecting infrastructure. So we have a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, just a big unknown. And so what we've been doing with the communities is hearing from them about where the problem locations are. Um, we've installed uh, cameras, uh, digital cameras that collect photographs of different areas of the community so that we can very precisely document when flooding is happening um, and so that we can slowly build a, a system in place that can warn residents about when an event is likely to occur. And that all that's happening, um, you know, with, with the community as, as, a, as an important collaborator of the research.
3: So, William, you are part of this group called Centerville Citizens for Change. Yes, ma'am. Um, when did your group get involved with saying, okay, we're going to become citizen scientists. We're going to help them gather this data and, and try to document, figure out what's happening here.
0: Oh, well,
1: I guess it's what, been about three years of when the cold and them come in. been about three years, you think, maybe Maybe this year going on four years, but okay, so it's been a few years now, yes, ma'am.
3: And were you and your neighbors was this something that you were, were actively interested, ready to get involved with us,
1: yes, ma'am? Because we didn't think nobody cared, and then nobody never reached out to try to help us, regardless of how much you complained to the city. You know, they never wanted to hear anything we had to say about it. You know, they uh, just give us time, we're gonna get to it. You know, I mean, my God, uh, how long do we wait for you to get to it?
3: Yeah, I mean, they're telling you they're going to get to it. Years turned into decades as they're saying this. Yes, ma'am. So here come these scientists and they're saying, okay, you know, we're going to we're going to look concertedly at this, but we need you to share your observations on what's going on. I bet people gave them an earful.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, Jose, you're a professor at Williams College. This is in Massachusetts. Um, what led you to get involved with this effort? It, it seems to be more obvious that researchers at WashU and, and St. Louis University would be involved, but here you are. Mm.
2: Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm sounding like a, a parrot here or a broken record about these great questions. But uh, you know, you, you brought up uh, uh, Walter Johnson, who is a professor of history at Harvard, also in Massachusetts, as, as we all know. Um, Walter and I have uh, have known each other for some time, and he learned about an interest by our research group to get involved in environmental justice issues, to leverage the resources that we have at our disposal, to help communities that are dealing with these these kinds of problems. And you heard from William, you know, and unfortunately, um, in spite of pleas for help and, and in spite of, you know, requests of assistance, um, not much was, was given or provided to the community. And uh, and I have, uh, you know, a really um, moving memory of, of being in the community along, um, you know, Bellevue uh, St- uh, Avenue and, and having residents come out to us, mm-hmm. wondering who we were and just being overwhelmed that scientists from New England um, would be so moved and so affected by what what they were suffering, that they were willing to, to, to come out and, and leverage and, you know, whatever resource they had at their disposal and to, and to lend a hand. So it's it's been an incredible uh, journey for me, and and it's it's something that we're we're quite committed to to doing in help of the community.
3: So, what would you say? And, and you know, now that you've been involved in this effort now for a few years, um, what have some what are some things you've learned about this problem as you've kind of dug into it?
2: Yes, you know, um, the problem is. Um, Unnatural in that, you know, as William, as the residents know. I mean, that's the thing that, uh, as as scientists, I think, speaking to to all of us as a you know as a community here, that um, we have had a, a, a reputation, uh, a well earned reputation of, you know, moving into communities, uh, assuming that we have all the answers quite readily, you know, willing to dispense those answers and then and then to fly away again. Um, and what we're, we're learning here and what we learn in, in, in every community that we're working with, is that residents know exactly what's going on. They know why they're suffering, what they're suffering. And the best that we can do, quite honestly as scientists, is to translate that knowledge into a different format, a different form that they, that can then be used to um, either find resources to deal with the, to deal with the problem uh, or um, to more. Uh, you know, to, to 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 help design solutions to keep this problem from from occurring. Um, yeah.
3: So yeah, so you're sort of drawing on the knowledge of residents, um, but it sounds like there's still some big questions that That's you need right. to get to the bottom of. What do you, what do you see of some of the big questions you're hoping to find answers to?
2: That's right. Yes. Um, there are two or several really big problems that the community faces. You know, the the first one from you know my perspective as a, as a geoscientist, an earth scientist, are these channels that um, are coming off of the bluffs and are filling up these you know, ditches and, and canals and, and streams with sediment. We need to figure out you know, how that process is happening, the role that land use change and, and, and environmental mismanagement is, is playing in that, um, in that regard. We also need to do a better job of, of figuring out the kinds of rainstorms, the, 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 the kinds of storms that trigger flooding. Um, you know, Centerville is a is a community that um, you know if if less than a quarter of an inch of rain falls on Centerville, the residents experience widespread flooding, hmm. and that's that's not that's not normal at all in any circumstance anywhere across the floodplain on either side of the river. And I, and what we are in the process of doing now is trying to develop models and and, and methods of collecting data so that we can you know better predict when these kinds of events are going to occur which will hopefully prepare and it's not a solution to the problem but mm-hmm. we'll ho- what we're hoping is that we can prepare residents for when for when flooding is going to be um, a real hazard to to their well-being
3: so William the idea of flooding being a hazard I mean this is something that it's affected your family I mean you fear yes, that that this has affected the health of, of loved ones who lived in your house yes ma'am Tell me what are your what are some of your suspicions about how this has affected your family?
1: Well, like I say, you know, me, and my, my wife passed away in '05. So, you know, she passed away from breast cancer, and I think it come from the water. Mm-hmm. Then we lost a couple of kids, you know, in birth, and then I got my last kid. She had leukemia. We don't know where it come from. Mm-hmm. So.
3: Do you to to this day? Do you drink the water that that comes from your tap?
1: No, ma'am, because the cold them had the water donated in. So we only thing we do well, I wash dishes in it, and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that.
3: But you don't drink it. No, ma'am. Your lawyer said don't drink this water anymore. Yeah, this this yes. could be a real problem. Right. And in the meantime, your house, uh, your house has continued to deal with this flooding. How has this affected the the foundation of your house and you know its ability to to stand as a as a house that somebody would want to live in?
1: It's barely standing. Yeah. Because, uh, it, like I say, it shifted the foundation. So up there at the roof, you can see how it don't come in, you know come in to you know. Then, like I say, I put. Three new set of floors in, and it don't rotted them out from the water just sitting over a period of time. My furnace, my hot water tanks, and stuff like that.
3: Things are just breaking down in the middle of these flood yeah. conditions.
1: And I'm on a fixed income now, so I really can't afford to fix anything much. You know, just just try to get by.
3: William, I'm sure people listening to this are thinking, this guy has to move. What has kept you from, from moving out of Centerville, now Cahokia Heights?
1: Well, I don't have it finance to move.
3: That costs money.
1: It costs money. Oh. So one thing I can do is just try to make ends meet and, you know, just keep on going and hope something happens sooner or later. Hope God bless us some kind of way.
3: So, Jose, I I know you're working on this problem, and this is something you and and your fellow researchers want to get to the bottom of, want to help these residents with. You know, so many times there's initiatives, people get grant funding, they work on something for a couple years. Do you feel long-term committed to this problem here in Cahokia Mm -hmm. Heights?
2: Yes, yes. I mean, the short answer is is yes. But, you you know, you, you, I think... um hint at, you know, what makes this so difficult is that, uh, you know, it's not something, there's no, there's no easy fix to this. Um, You know, I think one of the really important special aspects of of this work for me has been to collaborate, not just with fellow scientists, but with other like-minded, similarly motivated and wonderful people that I think uh, you'll be speaking to shortly. Um, You know, our Collective of scientists and, and lawyers and, and public policy advocates. I think you know we bring to the table uh, a whole range of skills, perspectives, and, and insights that you know we're, we're trying to um, you know galvanize in support of the community. So I you know we we're committed, um, and but we know that there's you know how effective and impactful the work that we can do really does depend on you know this this. This larger group who are are all working with the community to to come up with short, medium, and and long-term solutions to this problem.
3: Well, Jose Constantine, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, William is going to stay with us, and we will also meet Nicole Nelson. That's a lawyer who has been working on this from the legal end of things, trying to bring change for these residents. Uh, This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We have been talking today about the big uh, flooding problems and sewage problems in the town that was previously known as Centerville, Illinois. Uh, Today, it is known as Cahokia Heights. It merged with two other small towns just one year ago. Now, we heard from an assistant professor of geosciences who has been working on the ground to identify the cause of this flooding. And we've also been talking to William McNeil. He is a Cahokia Heights resident, a member of Centerville Citizens for Change. William, pushing for change, it's fair to say. Yes. Um, and we're also joined today by Nicole Nelson. She is an attorney. She is the executive director of Equity Legal Services. That's a nonprofit law firm based in Belleville. Nicole, welcome. Hi. Well, thank you. So, Nicole, I understand that environmental cases haven't historically mm-hmm. been your focus at Equity Legal Services. How did you first get involved with this situation in the town previously known as Centerville? Sure. Um, it was
0: definitely by happenstance. Um, I met a uh, Centerville resident, Walter Bird. Um, He had a a bill from American Bottoms, which I know, Mr. McNeil, you're very familiar with. A lot of the residents yeah. are. Um, and he started telling me about the sewage in his yard right? and why he shouldn't be receiving this bill because th- the waste wasn't actually being carried to the plant.
3: American Bottoms is... is a
0: waste, uh, a waste management facility where okay. they treat the, the waste, but the waste wasn't actually making it to the facility. Um, and he was like, it stands in my yard. And he was like, you should come see it. Walter's very personable, um, just a great guy. So I did. I went out and it was. I of flush the toilets the waste would come up in the yard Um, and this was like early spring of 2018 went out there, saw it, um, and then um, we just started sending FOIA requests. Um, and at that time, I was at a different nonprofit, um, and we started working organically together. He starts telling other residents they have these issues. Um, and then Khalilah Jackson, who's also another attorney on the case, she works for EHOC, also a nonprofit, we started meeting with residents. We had a first meeting. People came out from all over uh, Centerville, and, um, and we found out this problem had been happening
3: for decades. So, yeah, longstanding problem. And, and William, as you had explained before the break, um, you guys were pushing to try to get anybody interested in You're doing right. something about this. And here, almost like, you know, two guardian angels <laughs> come, yes. these two attorneys. Yeah. Were people feeling hopeful at this point?
1: Yeah, we were really feeling hopeful.
3: And you that, know, that
1: maybe something could come, up, come of it.
3: Yeah. yeah. And so the tricky thing legally, you have to figure out who to sue, and you have to figure out who can make this situation right. And from talking to Jose, it's clear that this site has been neglected for so long, people can't even fully explain what has (laughs) caused all these problems. I imagine as a lawyer coming into this, it must have been a lot to get your head around. Um, Yeah. Uh, For
0: the first year, I think we were doing a lot of uh, due diligence, and a lot of that was having community meetings so that people like Mr. McNeil Um, They could all tell us what was the problem, like they're experts in their situation, not us, right? So a lot of the community community meetings was them telling us what were the issues and we would go back and study it essentially and assign each other parts. Um, And we realized this was not our expertise. And that's how we brought people like NRDC,
3: Earth Justice, and Jose uh, to the table. So you have a lot of people now working on this. And in the meantime, you've taken this to court. Um, You and Kalila Jackson, the attorney you mentioned who works for EHOC, you filed suit in 2020. This was in federal court. Um, And this was basically alleging a violation of the Fifth Amendment, uh, the takings clause of the state constitution. You guys were seeking, like, you wanted this situation to stop even more so than you were asking for financial recompense. You're saying, get the sewage out of these lawns.
0: Right. That that first set suit was filed uh, on what we wanted to be an emergency basis, right? Like, make this stop immediately.
3: And that, unfortunately, I mean, the judge said some things about this case, that, that you guys have a good likelihood of, of success on the merits. Right. He wouldn't He wouldn't do the emergency right. things you were asking for.
0: That's right. That ruling was an, an a oversimplification would be that um, this is not an emergency because um, his opinion was basically um, money could help it, right? And so that we needed to go back, ask for damages. And so it's proceeding
3: as basically a regular lawsuit, not
0: as an emergency one.
3: So, William, I imagine that was a frustration. This has got to feel like an emergency for somebody living in the middle of it.
0: I would
1: think that's an emergency, you know, because things are so bad. When it when really when it rained, you know you got to flush your toilet with a bucket for real. Yeah. This time, during this year in time, you know.
3: Yeah. That, that would feel like an out. emergency in my house. Yeah,
1: and n- nobody reach out to try to help you or nothing, and then city just looked right over it like it's nothing. Yeah. You know.
3: But so when a judge says something like that, you got to take the advice they give, and so you guys went back to court and said, okay. Now you're, the judges said uh, these people deserve money. You're saying, okay, give us some money so that we can fix this. What's going on with this second
0: lawsuit? Um, the second lawsuit was always um, a plan, right, is that uh, res, there were some residents who did want money. Um, they wanted to be able to fix their houses and get their money back. Uh, a lot of the residents, um, as Mr. McNeil mentioned, live on very limited income, so they've been repairing the same floors, buying five or six hot water heaters and furnaces throughout the lives of their home. um and so they they want that money back and a lot of their homes are unstable um but between those two lawsuits um we did a lot of work with the agencies that should have been doing the work so it's the uh, li- i always say litigation is maybe 30% of what we do uh, a lot of what we have, we also do is a lot of pushing behind the scenes and agitating um to make A
3: lot of people do their jobs. So I'm glad you brought this up, because as I was reading over the legal record (laughs) in this case, I kept saying, where is the Illinois EPA? Mm -hmm. I mean, with this kind of catastrophic situation these residents are dealing with for decades on end and have apparently been sounding the alarm about, do you feel like the Illinois EPA has done what it needed to do on this site? Well, if you can find them, you let
0: me know. <laughs> um, they used to—I will say—they used to sit in on the. So, Centerville Citizens for Change has uh, meetings twice a month. They used to, at our behest, sit on those sit in on those meetings at least once a month. Um, they they no longer do so. They did get a grant for the Watershed Program. I don't know if you saw that. It's like a little under a little over a million, and uh, farm that out to Heartland Conservancy. Um, I I believe they. They think that's one of their greatest accomplishments in addressing this. Um, watershed program is voluntary; it, it doesn't address immediate needs. Now that does address yeah. some emergency work on some pump stations, which addresses conveying sewage. You know,
3: so this might deal with one
0: small part of this problem, it's, but it's not an immediate um, nor a long term fix. And that's kind of been our push behind the scenes on the IEPA, um, but it's it's been difficult. So.
3: What about the U.S. EPA? <laughs> Have they been helpful at all in this quest to get this problem fixed? Um, You know,
0: the U.S. EPA, it'll be a year and a few months um, that they entered administrative orders um, against the Kokia Heights and Common Fields for the sewage overflows um, and the drinking water system. Um, I think that was a big step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have ongoing conversations with them, our team, and we hope to see stronger enforcement measures because to date, the um, residents' daily lives have not really changed.
3: And they did not bring these actions in court, as you kind of pointedly note in your lawsuit here. They're, you know, They filed a notice of potential violation of the Clean Water Act. This seems like a very clear-cut violation of the Clean Water Act, but putting that aside, they're not suing over this yet. They could sue over this.
0: Would you like to see them sue? I will. I will say that um, it is helpful that the residents have a chance to sue. Sure. Right. Because um, U.S. EPA can't sue for damages on behalf of a citizen. So, so that, this, would have, okay. that would have taken away the residents' ability to navigate this lawsuit in the way and for the, the resolution that they wanted.
3: OK. Well, that's, uh, a, that's a very important point. Yeah. There. Mm-hmm. But look, one thing that also strikes me looking at this, this legal file is that what makes one thing that makes this pretty complicated is that Centerville uh, merged with these other entities and residents also voted to dissolve the conflict common fields this was the the utility that you're seeking to to sue here does that complicate things in terms of trying to hold people responsible they're saying hey well this entity that that maybe Mm -hmm. was asleep at the wheel for decades we no longer exist Mm -hmm. you can't sue us Mm -hmm. i think their council thinks it does
0: um (laughs) sure i think they think it does i um on the record publicly and and uh documents they've acknowledged that they're taking on the liabilities and assets of um, these entities that they've dissolved, including common fields and Centerville so um, and I think public policy wise that would be a terrible. Uh, Terrible precedent. Right. So again, I think they think it does. So you're not letting them off the hook here. No, we have no plans. We don't think it's a legitimate argument. So
3: So they have filed a motion to dismiss. It'll be interesting to see what happens with this. You continue to push this case. Mm -hmm. um, And there are now these two different cases proceeding in court. In the meantime, William, you continue (laughs) to live with this. Yes, ma'am. Do you feel at this point, do you feel hopeful that these court cases are going to lead to some changes that's going to make life better for for you and your fellow citizens.
1: Yes ma'am, I do think, you know, I, at least I got a little bit of hope, you know. Yeah. But you know, I, you you know, I'm I'm 70 years old, so if they don't hurry up, I might not be here to see it anyway. So, <laughs> so.
3: And Nicole, does that feel like a motivation to you? I mean, you have these residents, mm-hmm. and their lives are, you know, mm-hmm. the, the days continue. That's right.
0: Yeah, that's always been a, a concern. Um, a lot of the residents, like Mr. McNeil said, 70, 80s. Um, they don't have tomorrow. they have yesterday, right? Oh, yeah. So um, for Khalila and I, it's that's a huge a huge push.
3: So I began this conversation with a quote from Walter Johnson, the Harvard professor, Missouri native, who's really done so much to publicize this issue. Here's something he wrote about Centerville. More than one time, I have heard visitors say it's like Mississippi in the 1930s, and there is something true and revealing about the comparison. But more even than the past, Centerville looks like the future, a future unfolding at the confluence of climate catastrophe, structural racism, infrastructural deterioration, and widespread indifference to black suffering nicole does that that thought resonate with you it
0: does yeah that's exactly um what it is and um yeah and you're going to keep fighting yep all of us it's not 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 anything any one of us can do right we couldn't do it without the residents mobilizing and uh, sure couldn't do
3: it if Khalil and I weren't teamed up together. So, Well, Nicole Nelson, thank you so much for making the time to thank join us today. You, and Nicole is an attorney and executive director of Equity Legal Services in Belleville. And William McNeil, thank you so much for joining us. And we really wish you the best. I want to see resolution on this case and that you'll be here to see it.
1: Me too. I showed the hopes, though.
2: Today's episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer.
3: St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air?